I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gadigal people of the Enora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It is 11 Mason Park. I don't think that many other restaurants in the world could have done this shift. You can be yourself and you can feel comfortable from the moment you walk into the dining room and you can feel comfortable and looked after uh, in, this, in this environment. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Gabrielle Tabella is the wine director at 11 Madison Park, perhaps one of the most coveted wine roles in the world. Born into a family of restaurateurs, you could say hospitality is in his blood. He joins me today to discuss what life is like working at, to- at the top of the grapevine. Hi, Gabriel. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shante. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's so lovely to be able to chat to you. I've got a million questions, but you're in Australia right now. Where are you joining me from today? Uh, I'm in Sydney right now. Um, we are uh, in Sydney for the past couple of weeks and until the end of this week, uh, doing a little pop-up uh, with Aria restaurants. Mm, well, it's a beautiful spot to be with a wonderful team. Is this your first time to Australia? It is indeed. It is my first time in this part of the world and uh, so far it has been absolutely a blast, uh, especially thinking that this is winter uh, compared to the winter in New York City. You can imagine how drastic the difference is uh, and how much we enjoyed it. <laughs> I bet. And I'm sure all the Australians are telling you that it's, it's freezing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you really picked an amazing spot working, you know, right underneath the, the Sydney Opera House. How has the uh, ARIA pop-ups been so far? It's been absolutely amazing. Uh, almost overwhelming, um, receiving so much, so much attention in a way and the excitement of the guests joining us. So some people have traveled uh, specifically to join us for one night. We had some guests joining us from New Zealand, from across Australia, uh, flying in Sydney just to, to come and see what we do. And, and that's just absolutely mind-blowing and amazing. And the team at Aria has been, uh, has been more than welcoming. Um, it's, been, it's been a blast. It's been a blast. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And I'm glad we're showing you some good hospitality. I mean, this is a wonderful opportunity for people to experience um, that kind of dining, you know, especially as, as travel has been a little bit more challenging. But I want to talk a little bit about where you come from and a little bit about, you know, your growing up. You, you grew up um, in a French-Italian restaurateur family. Tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like. Uh, yeah, I mean... So my parents owned a restaurant uh, 40 or over 40 years. Um, started as a really tiny Italian place doing only pasta, pasta pizza. Uh, and then my father, who's definitely learning on his own, never been to any culinary school whatsoever, um, wanted throughout the year to really kind of level up a little bit and, and, and increase the quality both of the food and the service that he was providing in his restaurant with my mom. Uh, and so I grew up with that, uh, pretty much. I mean, I keep saying that and it's not necessary to brag about, but like the first time I actually walked on the floor, I was seven year old carrying one pizza at a time at the table because we had like a big football event in France at that time. Um, so I grew up really alongside, uh, this transformation of the restaurant and, and this transformation of, of the passion and the improvement of the passion of my parents for all things hospitality, food and wine, especially. Um, 
we were in the middle of France. I mean, my parents still live in this small city of Vichy. Um, and you can imagine that in France, the wine lists usually are pretty French centric. Uh, well, they went definitely the other side and had a fully Italian wine list. The only French wine on the list were a Bourgogne Aligoté to make the Kir, uh and a couple of Champagne. So it always been extremely interesting to, yeah, chat with guests about all wine things. Uh, and especially, again, like when you're in the middle of France and you have um, French guests uh, joining us in an Italian restaurant, they used to have French wine available and label that they recognize and appellation they recognize. So guiding them and helping them to discover new things and going off the beaten path was a lot of fun. And so I've done that for most of my childhood. As soon as I had a weekend, as soon as I was on holiday, um, I will help out at the restaurant. Uh, my brother will help as well a little bit. Um, so I kind of grew up really, really in that way, knowing that ultimately I will end up in this field. Um, but I didn't know where, when, and how that would, uh, that would work out. Incredible. I'd love to see a photo of you seven years old carrying a pizza through the restaurant. I hope, I hope you have some memories like that. But um, did you ever find it, you know, that you wanted to be somewhere else as a kid, that you wanted to be playing, or did you feel a sense of kind of responsibility and you enjoyed being around, you know, the dining scene? Yeah, no, I'm... I'd never had the feeling of missing out on anything. Um, again, like growing up in a, I want to say a restaurateur family, um, we never necessarily celebrated, I don't know, New Year. New Year's Eve wasn't, wasn't a thing. New, Year, New Year's Eve was like a busy day at the restaurant that we actually prepared uh, for, for weeks in advance. Uh, all those celebration was actually happening at the restaurant with our guests. Uh, and then in family, uh, we will have a glass of champagne at the end of the night or we'll have something like this. We will celebrate among us. But we, I never had the feeling of, of missing out. And I had so much fun. Like, generally, I had so much fun on the floor. And on top of that, I mean, every summer when I was working, I got my salary. And at the end of the summer, I could buy myself whatever I wanted. So, uh, yeah, I was extremely happy with the outcome and how it was working out, like, the, the interaction with the guests was almost more fun for me than going out and like ride a bicycle or like play ball in a way. Mm. Sounds like it's a real testament to your, your parents as well, who obviously ran, you know, a fun place to be um, and, you know, somewhere exciting. And like you said, you saw all the benefits of that nice kind of salary package you could take home, but pretty amazing of, of, of your family as well. Like you said, to have had a more Italian centric list in, in you're right in the middle. I had to look up Vichy cause I was thought, Oh, I, th I know that name, but I'm trying to think of so West of Lyon. Um, and so, you know, to have a, a mostly Italian wine list, that is pretty amazing. Um, did you find yourself kind of, describing, you know, as you grew up over time, describing some of those wines to the people or, or were you familiar with them? Um, a bit of both. Like um, I was familiar with them because, again, having a big Italian wine cellar, um, we we would drink Italian wine us on our uh, on our own time, like on the, the family table, on the dinner table, you will have a bottle of Italian wine. So I grew up with them and I that is, that is true that at the very beginning of my and my career, I will often for myself more than when I was describing them to others. Um, when I will discover 
new wines, I will almost like compare them to what I knew and therefore compare them to Italian wine uh, at first. So um, especially thinking about um, Brunello and, and Barolo there, those two appellations specifically have been a big kind of, um, I don't want to say benchmark, but kind of like uh, a good a good line to to follow and to describe other things and compare to uh, in a way. Yeah, that that makes sense to me because unlike any almost any other wines in the world, they're almost uncomparable uh, to other varieties, aren't they? But you joined uh, Tan Hermitage Wine School was straight out of you know working. What was that education like? Uh, that was a blast. It was a blast. Um, so this wine school specifically was the only one I applied. Um, so I finished my, uh, uh, my degree uh, back in Vichy of hospitality. And like, I knew I wanted to, to go further. I didn't want to jump into, uh, in a way, the real world quite yet. I wanted to either specialize. I, I wasn't quite sure at the time if I wanted to specialize a little bit more in the kitchen. Um, knowing that I wanted to end up in the dining room, but having a little bit more of a background in the kitchen or deepen my knowledge in the dining room. And, and I thought that if I were going to go in the dining room, the only thing I needed to really, really dive into because it's such a big world in a way is, is wine. And so I looked it up and like the wine school that everybody has recommended to me at the time was Tanyamitage who historically was the first wine school uh, created in France um, over 30 years before uh, I even joined the, the, the class. Um, and so I applied there. I've been very, very fortunate to be, to be accepted. Uh, but it was absolutely amazing. The first year, um, I mean, I remember after two days at school, uh, you, you basically start school in September, obviously. And after a couple of days, you're sent into a stage um, to harvest vinification and those kind of things. And I ended up at, uh, Jean, uh, Michel Chapoutier estate, uh, obviously in Tanermitage, which at the time was like the brand new winery. It was, it is a, a very, really big operation, but, uh, Michel has also such a range of different things that he's doing from buying wine to put his own label to, to the really tiny plot that he's going to harvest uh, individually ferment individually and like all the thing in between. So I spent a month uh, working at the winery over there and really learning first and, um, what winemaking could be and what winemaking at Michel Chapoutier estate was, uh, and at a massive scale in a way. So it was really, really amazing. And then, um, obviously being in a wine region like Tanamitage, like the Northern Rhone Valley is extremely uh, I mean, it's it's a privilege in a way because, especially about ten years ago now, um, it wasn't it was a famous region already, but not as famous as Burgundy can be or Bordeaux can be or those those wine region could be in France. Um, so when we were knocking at the door of of winemakers, like nobody ever kept the door closed to us. Like they were always extremely excited to open the door, get us down in the cellar and test on the barrel and, and come back maybe a month later and see the evolution. Like, uh, they were this, um, agreed, uh, exchange of knowledge in a way, uh, from any winemaker, any producer in, in the area. And, uh, and then I had the opportunity to, to, 
to travel a little bit. That was my first step uh, during my first year in Monaco and Atalanta Ducasse. Um, I worked there over the over the summer, and they offered me a job uh, as soon as I graduate. Um, and for my second year, I traveled to London. I really wanted to to learn a little bit, a little bit more uh, English and perfection my English, uh, which is still not as good as I would like it to be. But uh, so I started with uh, Elenda Rose. Uh, at the time, it was a two Michelin star within the Connaught Hotel in Mayfair. Uh, beautiful wine list. Uh, and very much the beginning of uh, where their wine program is at right now, which is definitely a world-class wine program, uh, and really learning about what's the wine the wine world outside of France. Uh, because, again, that's one thing. It's like like I was saying at the beginning, talking about my parents' restaurant, is when you're in France, you're in front of French wine. Uh, and, yes, there's some delicious and amazing things and, and et cetera, but... As soon as you step out of France and especially going in a city like London, like you in front of like the wine from the world, it is really a crossroad, uh, crossroad of many wine regions and many styles. And uh, it was the moment where really natural wine, organic wine also was starting to, to really be a thing in a way and something that I never experienced before and never really, really encountered before. Um, so it was really uh, uh, an important time for me, those, what, four, five, six months I spent in London. Um, and then when I came back, I uh, graduated uh, and went to work in, in Monaco. Amazing. So I didn't realize that you had that kind of opportunity to do in your first year and second year to do so much work within the field. That's wonderful that that's part of the program that you're, you're studying. Yeah, it's uh, it's a big luxury of this school. Uh, it's the only one in France that operate that way. Uh, so basically, if you do well, uh, you leave to after two years with uh, four diplomas. So you have two diplomas from the, the the Ministry of Education, and then you have the WSET number two, uh, level two and level three, uh, which are co-financed by uh, by the government as well. So it's it's it it is really a privilege. Like uh, it's this. This school definitely trained um, the person that I am right now and the professional that I'm now right now. But also, if you look at all the alumni from this school, like I don't know, there is some obviously at Anandukas, there is some uh, in, in Paris uh, at the Crayon. There is the Claude Sans Instrumission Star in in Nancy. Uh, there is some of us are, are across uh, France and and furthermore across the world. Um, and and that is that is beautiful because that's a network that the school managed to really keep alive. Uh, and every year when they graduate their, their second years, they will invite as many people as as possible to come and join into the party. So it is it is really a privilege to to have been able to to join this school and 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 study at this school. Oh, that sounds incredible, and um, I can't even imagine you know, being able to to wander through the kind of Northern Rhone and, and like you said, have doors open for you and, and be received and, and welcome in like that. That just uh, makes my heart beat a little bit faster. <laughs> but um, I think it's interesting what you said in terms of the approach of when you travel and you're working as a sommelier because I've always found that French sommeliers coming to Australia are so energetic about 
a world that they want to learn more about. And so their knowledge of, of France would always be unbelievable and perhaps lots of other places of the world. But when they would come to Australia, they would be so en- like enthused about learning about little small producers. And, you know, there was a, a lack of ego, almost a real humility about a, a place that they hadn't quite discovered as much as they wanted to. And it really gave a lot of energy to sometimes the other Australian sommeliers that were like, wow, you know, I'm I'm so thrilled that you think so much of our wine here. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, again, like we, we grow up, I mean, like any, any people who live in a, in a heavy wine producing uh, country in a way, Italy will be kind of the same and Spain will be the same. Germany, depending on the area, will be the same. But it's like you, we grow up with wine and with all those appellations that, um, that some people would like, I don't know, pay a fortune for. I mean, um, I had a friend when I was at a wine school who grew up, was born, raised, and grew up in Pirinier Morashi. I mean, it is a tiny village for anyone who went to Burgundy, and, and it's, but it is this thing where we, we kind of live in those French vineyards and those French appellations, and we, we come across them like so frequently that as soon as we have an opportunity to like, actually discover something different, something we never heard of. Uh, it is it is super exciting for us uh, because that's showing us how it can be done differently uh, and then connect the dots because maybe there is someone in France that we never heard of or back at, at our home country, whatever it is, uh, that might do something similar to what we tested in Australia or tested in, I don't know, in California, in Oregon, wherever, wherever it is. Uh, but like it allows us to like, connect those dots and, and understand the wine, the, the, the world of wine a little bit deeper, uh, especially that more and more the new generation of producers back in Europe, when they are young, like before taking over their parents' pr- pr- uh, um, domain or, or anything like this, like most of them will go and train in the Southern Hemisphere at some point because like there's so many challenges also happening in in, in different parts of the world to, to learn from that is... It is very exciting. And unfortunately, for some of the challenges, we're going to come across them very soon, if not already, uh, in, in, in Europe and, and in California. I've been, uh, I've been dreadful in the past few years uh, with the climate change. So all those things, for me, are kind of connected together. Mm. Yeah, so much to learn and to learn from each other in, in, in your travels. I want to talk a little bit because you then returned to London after you finished your, your training. Uh, as we know, each you know country has a different culture in wine. What was the biggest or the hardest thing to get used to when you moved to London in terms of a wine culture? What, what struck you that was different to what you had, had previously known in France? Um, probably two major things. Um, the first one is the love of, uh, the love of British people for fortified wine, which I obviously never really encountered before. It's not necessarily a thing in France, uh, unless you come from the Roussillon or or a specific region. Uh, and the second thing is the love for, uh, British people also to usually enjoy their white wine a little colder than I would have loved. Uh, so it was two things that I'm, uh, I was trying to navigate in a way. Uh, one which was like, well, put your, uh, um, put your opinion aside and, uh, and serve the wine as they requested it. Uh, and the other side was like to learn from, yeah, all things fortified. And, and I mean, obviously Sherry has such a hard, hard, 
um, influence in a way in, in, in London and there is such a big scene uh, which was absolutely amazing to learn from. Um, so those were definitely like two of the main changes in a way. Uh, but then after it was how international every single wine list were and and that's that's just pure uh pure joy like we i mean i remember especially when i was in stage at the connot in between lunch and dinner uh we will check on the on internet which tasting there is in town and we will take like an hour and a half like run into the tube with a couple of other sommelier uh and and then co test for like an half an hour 45 minutes jump on the tube back and get back to work for for dinner service but it's having like this this amount of like tasting having sometime a room an entire room dedicated to yeah australia for that matter um where when you never necessarily approach a, a specific vineyard it's just the, the 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 perfect luxury it's like you have all the style pretty much in one room most of some of the most influential producers of a specific region a specific country in one in one room uh and you can just go and dive into it so it's it, london for that was absolutely absolutely amazing yes i can imagine it is such a mecca for for everybody that kind of stops over and has to to show their wares so um I, I can imagine that's pretty exciting and I also can imagine it would make your days very, very long in terms of a big, long service, probably a few drinks after service and then doing tastings in the day. No wonder you probably worked um, a crazy amount of hours when you were there. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how, <laughs> which is, which is you know, it's a rite of passage, isn't it? We all have to do those very long 100 plus hours to, um, to find our boundaries. <laughs> um, to, Tell me how Make It Nice Group, how did you, you know, discover that and how did that come to play in your life? Um, so Make It Nice, I discovered it the first time when uh, the show Seven Days Out. Oh, no, actually, no, I discovered it a little earlier than that. When I came back to London, so that was in 2015, uh, I went to work for a chef called Marcus Waring. Uh, the restaurant was uh, within the Berkeley Hotel in London. And... At the time, the general manager uh, was just coming back from uh, Eleven Mason Park. Uh, and so we'll talk often about his experience at Eleven Mason Park. And for me, I was like, I never heard of this place. Uh, that was back in, in 2015. Um, in France, 50 base is kind of important, but not as important as it can be in some other countries. Um, and so I start to look it up. Uh, I look it up online and I start to look at the wine list, which was absolutely crazy. Um, I ended up on an article talking about the team at 11 Mason Park and like this person was a master some and like this person done that and that and that. And like, I was thinking like, this is, this is a step too high. Um, I mean, I'm an ambitious person, but like I was first, this is the, this is New York and, and as a fresh citizen, like that would imply visa and everything, but like, also, like, those guys are pushing so hard. Like, there is, there is no chance in hell uh, that we'll end up over there. And I kind of, like, brushed off that off the plate altogether and stayed in London and carried on in London and not even, like, applied. You know, not, I didn't even give it a shot. And if, if I, I have one regret, it's probably this one. I would have loved to actually, like, push myself a little bit and, like, actually applied at that time or so. Um, but then um, 
Netflix released Seven Days Out, uh, which is a small show for anyone who's, who's listening. If you have an, if you work in hospitality, you ever open a restaurant, highly encourage you to watch it. Uh, it's, uh, basically a series that shows and follow 11 Madison Park after being named best restaurant in the world, closing down and reopening, uh, for their first night. So kind of like the old idea of the show is like the seven days leading to a big event and this big event being the reopening of the MP and like, so I watched this show and I was like, oh my God, like it's, it's impossible. I, did, I, I, I could not believe that's a place like EMP could exist. I mean, especially refurbed is like, it's, it's, this restaurant is, is, is more than being beautiful. Like it's one of those places where you feel that everything has been thought through. Uh, so just or, already as an environment, as the dining room, as the service station, the wine cellar, the kitchen, everything has been thought through. Everything is where it should be. Um, and everything almost has been designed for uh, this specific environment. So that's, that was really, really mind-blowing. And then I worked in between for a company called Caprice Holding in London. I, was, I just wanted to experience the corporate role in a way. Uh, and managed several venues and, and I've done that for a couple of years and, and in January 2019, um, it was announced in the, in the British press and in, in the press in, uh, across the world actually that Chef Daniel Hume will open a restaurant in London. Uh, and so someone reached out to me as someone that I was, uh, used to work with. Um, it was like, listen, like the, the, the current one director of 11 Mason Park, yeah, it's going to be in town in, in London. They are opening a new place. Are you interested to meet in them? It's like, yeah, of course, who would, who would not meet them? I mean, are you crazy or what? Um, so, so we had a breakfast, uh, with Cedric Niquez, who was the wine director of EMP at the time. Um, and we started chatting, uh, over breakfast and like, it's, it's actually funny because it's, it's probably one of these only interview that I ever had in my life where it wasn't an interview. We sat down, we kind of like exchanged politeness in a way and like, uh, and, and those little uh, chit chat in a way. And then Cedric pulled his phone, showed me the wine list of 11 Mason Park. And then we started to talk about wine. And then we start to dive into the list. And I was amazed of how the list has grown already and like how deep, especially with my love for the Rhone Valley. I mean, this list for Rhone Valley is just like, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's the, the, the depth and the, and, and, and the diversity of things that, that this restaurant has is, is, is really amazing. And it, it's a testament of all the team throughout the, throughout the time. Um, so I came across, uh, make it nice that way. And, uh, I ended up being offered the position of of one director to open this restaurant, Davis and Brooke, uh, in London, uh, which obviously I jumped on this position. Uh, and that was kind of the beginning of the journey with Make It Nice. Do you think that if perhaps your chat with Cedric was more of an interview, you would have been much more nervous and, and uh, freaking out a little bit more? Uh, probably, but I think also, and it's, it's something that's, that's definitely, that's definitely true. That's definitely true, but they also, the skill of Cedric and, um, it's, it's something that I always try to do since then is like the way of looking at interviewing for your team. Uh, you're not looking at yet. You want something that's, that's a high performer in a way you want something that, that has the, the, the qualification and the experience and those kind of things. But most importantly, I mean, we are in hospitality. 
we need to we 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 need to focus on finding people that that you feel the warmth you feel you feel the hospitality you know you that you you know that you will have them in front of guests and they will look after the guests and then we can teach them the technicality and and Cedric helped me to build my first wine program and he answered the question technically speaking that I had uh in terms of like how do I do I don't know how how many glassware should I order for the first glassware order for a restaurant of that side and all those kind of things like that you can learn but uh I think what Cedric hopefully saw in me was like this uh this thing that I love to talk to people and and I love to look I love to look after people and I love to like chat about diverse things and uh and hopefully that was kind of why the the interview wasn't really an interview but more of a chat yes definitely I, I completely agree with you with all of those things that you've said it, it is true and, and and trying to teach the natural kind of way of letting people be at ease and relax and feel comfortable in your company is certainly something that you really can't teach it is quite difficult so it's wonderful that he made you feel that way and and in and in saying that i'm sure he got the very best out of you and was able to learn all the things he needed to know and you were very successful obviously at davison brook in 2021 you joined the 11 Madison Park team. That's a strange time to join a company um, in the midst of kind of a pandemic happening. How did that come about? Um, so basically the restaurant Davis and Brooke had to close down, um, unfortunately, uh, at the end of 2020, 2021, sorry. And so I joined in March, uh, March 2022, the time that the visa was, uh, was all sorted out. Uh, but basically... When Davis and Brooke closed, um, like I looked at the at, at what was in London at the time and like any opening that I might have heard of at the time that was in, in the work and like as as exciting as some opportunity could have been, like there were nothing that was quite close to uh, to make it nice. And obviously David Mason Park, Chef offered me the opportunity to move to, to New York, which was a new city and it's those kind of things like if I if I didn't do it at that time, I don't think I would have ever done it at all. Um, plus, it's Sullivan Mason Park. It's like for me, one of the 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 mecca of fine dining, of hospitality, and and wine. Uh, so having the offer on the table of like, yeah, pack your bag and jump on the plane and come and join us. That was that was really really amazing and and exciting and. And yes, obviously, it was a transition period uh, at the time, like any restaurant. Uh, we we were just off the pandemic. The restaurant reopened about six months before that, a little bit over six months um, before I joined, with a very different culinary approach, as you as you know. Um, so yeah, it was it was a lot of uh, a lot of challenges ahead, definitely, uh, but. Furthermore, it was the luxury of being able to stay within the company that I was in already. I mean, uh, and 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 carry on. I want to say um, embracing the 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 vision of this company, the vision of Chef, and and also the vision and the approach that this company has for hospitality and fine dining, which to me is is very modern and very different to to a lot of restaurants that I have experienced in my, in my career and, and, and still a lot of restaurants that I, that I hear from uh, very often. 
And it's wonderful if you do find a group like that that has a culture and, and uh, you know, a, a wonderful kind of philosophy on how they treat their staff and, and their approach, it's kind of one you want to stick stick with. So I think that you definitely made the right decision there. Uh, I mean, it must have been amazing to be at the start of something so massive when Daniel decided to go all plant-based. What was the experience like of being a part of that story from the get-go? Um, well, we I was part of the story, but obviously a little afar because the first time Chef told us that he was going uh, plant-based was so at the beginning of 2021, uh, and at that time I was in London. So we, we used to have those weekly um, Zoom meeting as it was uh, the trend at the time to all be on Zoom, but also it was very convenient for us between London and New York. Um, and so Chef uh, gather um, like all the upper management in New York City and, and the upper management in London, and we all jumped on the call and chef was like, I have something to tell you. We're going to reopen the restaurant as a fully plant-based restaurant. And I think every single one of us, especially in London, um, our jaw dropped. Uh, we, because as like, like straight off, uh, off the bat like this, it's, uh, it is hard to comprehend. Like, um, I think we all had the same reaction that anyone else has. Uh, and that some of the press had as well is like, why would you break something that's working? Like you closed up the restaurant as one of the most successful restaurants before the pandemic uh, with an incredible team and incredible uh, recipes, amazing wineset, amazing bar program, etc., etc. And you want to put all that at risk. Uh, so at first we, we kind of, we were very uh, apprehensive uh, but then Chef started to talk about it and, and, and it started to all make sense. And like, I, Chef is someone that has had the chance to, within his industry, pretty much win every single award possible. Like being best restaurant in the world, best chef, uh, a bunch of Jeff's Beard Award, which are very prominent awards back in, in New York City, uh, like New York Times, etc., etc., etc. So. Like in a way, he's someone who is driven by challenges and, and is driven by having a goal that he is going to pursue. And like he needed a new goal. And I think he knew that the team as well needed a new goal. Because since the restaurant was named Best Restaurant in the World in 2017, there weren't any more kind of goal, anything to kind of run for and after. So going into this approach was before anything else, like a creative move. It was like, um, and it's so fun that I described that to, to, to guests as well. You had some, some novel writer, novelist uh, back in France, uh, I think a few centuries ago, who would do the, a similar exercise when they would decide to write an entire novel and not use a single time the letter E, for instance, or another letter. And like, it, that forced creativity, that forced you to challenge yourself as soon as you remove something from from your 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 palette of color in front of you like you have to challenge yourself of how am i going to be able to like avoid that altogether or recreate something that is close enough um and i always approach like this move at 11 mason park as being that is like how far can we go with fine dining with cuisine if we were to remove all animal product, 
Um, and, and the political debate is never on the table. It's like, it, this is never part of, of our conversation. Uh, obviously we are very mindful of the environment and we want to be a better restaurant and a more responsible, responsible restaurant in that sense, like any restaurant in the world. Um, but mostly this was driven by creativity. It's like, how far can we go with that? Mm. I love it. It's funny. I, when I heard the news, I was just like, yes, baller move, because I just thought, Okay, first of all, I know it's going to be successful because you've got the best of the best working on it. But secondly, I thought, you know, at the that pandemic time, yes, it's hard because of finances and, you know, of course that's going to be, you know, on your mind. But it also was the time to reframe and throw the rule book out and and see what couldn't we do that's different and what can we change up that we perhaps in the past didn't feel the need to do. So I just saw it as this big baller move and I thought like this couldn't be more exciting love it yeah no that is, that is for sure that's for sure I've, I've worked with um, vegan degustations and vegetarian degustations in the past I always found that there was so much freedom because of the constraints of people not knowing what's classic and traditional you know for example you serve duck and People expect Pinot Noir. What's your approach in terms of the beverage offering that's accompanying that? Because as we know, in any restaurant, you know, the beverages are, are designed to really enhance the overall experience and the menu is a huge driving force of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you you exactly touched on on, on, on the right point. It's like um, it gives us so much freedom compared to before it is it is unbelievable in a way because exactly like you said like before you will have at some point a lobster so you know what you're gonna pair with that you're gonna have a foie gras you know you're gonna pair with that you're gonna have the duck obviously at the time uh and even though pinot will have will work absolutely amazingly we tend to go to shiraz because or syrah because they had this black peppercorn on the skin and like i mean it was just like a match made in heaven. It was just like, just perfect. And, and a no brainer in a way, a no brainer. Uh, but no, it's like, it is, it is really challenging for the kitchen as well, but it is extremely rewarding both for the kitchen and for us. Um, but every single menu is a new menu for us. When before we will change one or two courses, obviously adapt the, the sauce and the garnish of whatever dish or protein with the season we were moving in. Um, no, we are we are just creating. Like every menu is is a blank page starting off, and uh, and like you say, like there is no classic, there is no rule book, there is there is no like I don't know um, Bible from whatever chef that you can go back to and like all right, we're gonna do this recipe or we're gonna take a, we're gonna make a twist on this recipe. Now, pretty much everything we we've done since the reopening are like new dishes that that we we came up with in a way that we developed and the same goes for uh the wine pairing on our hand and the bar program as well for sebastian um i mean on the wine pairing we never had that much freedom it's like i, I always approach that in the way that if you think about it someone a guest who is willing to come at Sullivan mason park three mission star fully plant-based restaurant um is already someone who's coming with an open mind um, because there is also an amazing restaurant in New York City and they, they, they decided to come and give us a shot or come back and come and visit us. And, uh, but they are walking into the restaurant with an open mind of, of being wi uh, willing to 
to discover new things, discover new texture, new new tests or, or new recipes, uh, new technique, etc. So the kind of the same will apply with wine. Like we don't have any more those rules that um, you have to start absolutely in a way with champagne and then you, move, you need to move into, um, I don't know, a Riesling, moving into a Chardonnay, moving into a Pinot, moving into a Syrah. Like we don't have this progression anymore. Yes, some menu might mirror that because the way the, the the, the menu is built up and you have this crescendo effect in a way. Um, but if we want to put a white wine, then a red wine, then a white wine, then a red wine, or if we want to put a rosé in the middle, or if we want to put a sake, or it's like, it's, it's limitless. Uh, it's limitless in that sense. Having some beer in the pairing, uh, we actually were very close to, to lunch, to lunch that. And like we changed, we amended the menu at the last, at the last minute, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately. Uh, but like, again, like there is no, there is no limit whatsoever. And the guest has no expectation in a way because they don't know what they are going to jump into. Uh, so they, they trust us, uh, fully in that sense. Have you noticed a change in the clientele in terms of them being even more open-minded since you've gone plant-based? Do you see a little bit of a difference from, you know, what you've experienced in, in other restaurants? Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, the mass, the biggest change we experienced uh, was the demographic. We have a much younger clientele than we used to have, uh, which is, uh, again, extremely exciting uh, because they have different expectations and, like, they're different. Um, our, our guests now uh, have even more an open mind than the guests uh, before in a way, like they are willing to discover new things They are they are willing to dive into like an entirely, uh, a, a full on cocktail pairing in a way, or, or things like this, like they are, they are curious, uh, and, and they are willing to, yeah, again, take the risk to not like something. Uh, but they will, they, they will mm. give it a shot. I think that's fa- fabulous. And I imagine that very much, like you said, translates to also the style of wines that people are requesting. And and I think it's wonderful that, you you know, it's like breathing new life into kind of what the, the classic clientele of what we imagine goes to a fine dining restaurant is. And I think that that just means that there's probably a lot of new energy in the room and that's really exciting. Yeah, definitely. We uh, the, the, the dynamic in the, in the dining room changed drastically. I mean, we, we found that with the change of demographic as well, like things like, for instance, our, our playlist wasn't, wasn't right anymore. Like it was amazing for, uh, the quote unquote, all the MP, uh, a little bit jazzy, obviously Miles Davis focus, uh, and, 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 and so on. But like we, decided to change a little bit that and and pump up the the level of the music also in the dining room and and the dining room really feels very different and it's and it's even more of a party in a way a dinner party in a way uh than it used to be than it used to be before and like that's 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 beautiful that's really beautiful and and i agree that in a way I mean, it's also because it is 11 Mason Park. I don't think that many other restaurants in the world could have done this shift. Uh, but because of the grandeurs of the room and because of the, the, the ballet of all the, the, the dining room team and, and everything, like he, he makes such a beautiful atmosphere and like uh, a cheering atmosphere and, and somewhere where, yes, it is a three Michelin star restaurant. Yes, it is a former best restaurant in the world for 
whatever that means. Uh, but you can be yourself and you can feel comfortable from the moment you walk into the dining room, as grandiose this dining room can be. Uh, and, and, and you can feel comfortable and looked after uh, in, this, in this environment. I love it. I think it's incredible. And, uh, you know, it sounds like something that's got to be on everybody's bucket list to get over there and experience for it for themselves if they haven't already. <laughs> Certainly it's going to be on mine. Um, I want to know a little bit just quickly about, you know, what, what you love most about your job. At, at the end of the day, on a hard day or a particularly stressful day, what is the number one thing that just keeps you coming back? Uh, there is two things that are really, really close to one another. So it's hard to say that this one is more important than the other. Uh, but definitely the team. I mean, seeing the team growing, like we obviously, I mean, when the restaurant reopened, uh, they had to start from scratch. I mean, it's, it's a brand new team, uh, beside a couple of people or two or three people, uh, that was, that were here before the pandemic. Like everyone is like brand new. So seeing them growing and, and seeing them succeeding in uh, in a single position and getting promoted and then struggle a little bit and get better at it, more comfortable, and then crush this position and then move again further. That is that is really uh, really re- rewarding and and so much fun. Um, but then the other thing is like the guest and like seeing how much fun the guests have and like having some of our. Uh, I would say old regular who who didn't like experience the new EMP yet coming on their own will in a way, making themselves a reservation or being the guest of uh, people who made the reservation and like giving us a shot. And, and by the second, third course, looking at you and it's like, I, I can't realize that I can't imagine and I can't understand why I didn't give you a, a shot sooner in a way it's like seeing seeing them like changing their mind in a way and like enjoying themselves and it's 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 amazing it's 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 really rewarding and it's same it's a privilege like it's a privilege to work in an environment where the entire team is excited to be here is passionate to be here uh and guests are like as equally excited to join us it's 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 mind-blowing yeah, I, I, I agree that it's the people, isn't it? The people that just that make, you know, each day different and uh, and and give back so much for, for what you put in. I think that that's wonderful to hear. And, um, I mean, you have an amazing team there, so I, I think that that's just awesome. Um, I want to know if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? And I'm interested to see what you have to say because – I was looking through the list and absolutely frothing on some of the, some of the coat rotis you have. Oh my good God on the list. Oh, the Jamais list. Oh, but, um, I thought it'd be interesting to hear. And I know that it's a very hard question for a sommelier, but if just today, if you could only have three drinks today, what would they be? Um, I would probably start with Negroni. Uh, I guess that's the Italian side, uh, that's speaking here. Um, and it's definitely my drink of choice pretty much any night when I go out after a service. Um, Jean-Louis Chave Hermitage Catlin 1991 will be definitely, yeah. It's, it's, so I was born in 1991, which uh, as you might know in France, it is not a good vintage, uh, beside for some Champagne and the Northern Rhone Valley. And Jean-Louis Chave um, is like, 
probably one of the producers that I follow the most uh, in a way, obviously, like studying in Tan Hermitage and like, um, I mean, the number of like bottle of wine I drank on the Hermitage Hill, uh, looking at the vineyard, looking down at the vineyard uh, is, I don't even know how many of them, uh, but like I never had the chance yet to to open a bottle of Catlin 1991. And, and so, yeah, that is kind, is both my unicorn bottle. Uh, and, and yeah, that's, that would be something that, yeah, I could drink for the rest of my life. I, I, I bet I could. Um, and then the last one would be probably green chartreuse. Uh, I love my green chartreuse, especially VEP. Um, it is also something, it is such a versatile, uh, liquor that, Obviously, you can have neat. Uh, you can have with a little bit of soda. Uh, what I love to do also in the winter is a hot chocolate, and you put a few drops of ch green chartreuse in it. Uh, it's just delicious and and comforting in a way. Uh, so yeah, those three will be. That would be that, I guess. That says so much about you and you've wrapped that up beautifully because we've seen the French and the Italian side of you and the heart of where wine all started for you all come full circle. I can't think of three drinks that really um, wrap that up better uh, than those. So that's beautiful to hear. And I've never had a hot chocolate with a uh, chartreuse, so I am going to try that. There you go. Please let me know how you, you find it. <laughs> Gabrielle, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. It's lovely getting to know more about you. I have a million more questions, but we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you for joining me while you're here. I hope the rest of your time in Australia is wonderful. I hope you get out and get some sunshine, maybe even dip your toes in the water and uh, enjoy the rest of your time in Sydney. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to enjoy the, the last few days in Sydney and will definitely tip my toes into the water. <laughs> Perfect. Cheers to you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.